COVID-19 cases continue to increase in some communities across the country, though nationally, cases are falling. Businesses are considering how to open up safely, but some companies are choosing to work from home until forever. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Memorial Day is the unofficial start to summer, and folks all over the country enjoyed, well, tried to enjoy their favorite outdoor activities, even if socially distanced. And usually, on a Tuesday morning like this one, folks go back to work. But what back to work even means in the era of COVID-19 is up for debate. For folks privileged enough to work from home, it means throwing on the old sweatpants, firing up the Zoom room, and hitting the grind. And for some companies, this WFH thing, well, they kind of like it. Square is now the latest tech company to allow their employees to work from home permanently. And this comes a week after Jack Dorsey's other company, Twitter, announced the same thing. They're in the software world, so you could have always done remotely. Technology existed for uh, many years, and if you do computer-based work, it is exactly the same if you work in an office or if you work from Pete's Coffee, from any coffee shop, or from uh, home. But for a lot of people, how you get back to work safely remains an open question. At core here is the public health question. How do you open an eatery or an office or even Major League Baseball socially distanced? Well, Major League Baseball officials throughout the game are starting to get cautiously optimistic that we will have baseball, perhaps as early as late June. What impacts your life? This is the union talking to the players. There's going to be back and forth because the key, as Mike Trout said, there needs to be testing and there needs to be lots of testing. Part of that falls with businesses themselves. They have to make sure they can keep people distanced in uncrowded spaces with all of the PPE and hand sanitizer they'll need to limit any kind of viral spread. But a lot of that is on government. If we're going to open up, we need to know that viral spread across our communities is at minimum because the likelihood you get it from a coworker or someone sitting across from you on public transit is a function of the likelihood they have it, that anyone in society has it. To do that well, we have to have the means of contact tracing every single exposure of coronavirus so that one person who tests positive in an office doesn't turn into 20. And we have to test everyone who goes back to work at regular intervals, which requires us to have testing capacity at scale in general. And that's just the public health side of things. The other is the economic side. I understand the rush to open back up. Companies are chewing through money every day they stay closed, having to pay for overhead and workers they're paying for but aren't making money through. So predictably, all the businesses want to go back to work. But more importantly, there are workers themselves who need to earn a living. But not at the cost of their health. And opening up without the proper protections puts those workers at risk. And there's a bigger collective risk there, too. Every open workspace presents a small increase in the probability of transmission. And together, those probabilities add up. I think of it like a fire you're trying to stop from being kindled. Every bit of risk is like a piece of wood. Each of us may only be contributing a small piece of wood, but together, we contribute a lot of wood that feeds the flame. And if that flame grows, it could shut down the economy again. Can the economy even survive that? And then what if workers go back, but customers don't? To use another analogy here, shutdowns were kind of like a blackout for the economy. The electricity just gets shut off. But if you know anything about electronics, blackouts are bad in the short term, but they don't really have consequences in the long term. Once you turn the electricity back on, everything's back to normal. What's worse is a brownout. In a brownout, you don't get enough electricity to turn the lights all the way back on, but you do get enough to seriously mess with your electrical system. 
burning it out because it's not made to cope with low levels of electricity. What will it mean for the economy if we open up, but the lights don't turn all the way on? So when we talk about safety, I think we need to appreciate that there is no way around COVID-19, only through it. We have to be super careful not to ignite another wave that would kill countless more Americans and harm many more and bear the economic fallout of another shutdown or a brownout. To talk about what we'll need to open up safely, I spoke with two folks on the front lines of the public health response, Commissioner Rita Nieves, who leads the Boston Public Health Commission, and Dr. George Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. Commissioner Nieves walks us through a day in the life of a public health nurse to explain how contact tracing works, and George shares what we need to do to come out of this safely. Here's my interview with Commissioner Nieves. Rita, how are you? I'm great, Abdul. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. No, thank you for being, uh, for taking the time and thank you for being a leader on the front lines. Um, first, I just want to ask, what have the last three months been like for you? It's hard to describe, uh, Abdul, but uh, to say the least, it's been uh, three months of, of being in, in a surreal environment, you know, rapidly changing situation that, that has required us to be as strategic as possible in a very fast-paced um, environment and um, you know uh, it, it there, there have been chapters but you know in, in public health preparedness we call them phases right in our preparedness phase uh, that started you know mid-January uh, started with us having to brief the mayor when the first uh, uh, information was co- coming out of Wuhan about the um, the COVID-19 virus um, and, you know, briefing the mayor, letting him know that we were watching the situation and what was going on, what was the media uh, covering, and uh, to quickly having to, um, uh, you know, begin to disseminate information, uh, advisories to key partners and collaborators, universities, medical providers, and beginning quickly to establish, you know, systems and structure so we could coordinate, begin to coordinate efforts. Mm. We know that uh, tracing and, and what you talked about earlier, testing, are critical to reopening. Um, are we where we need to be? We're not. We have 41,000 people have been tested in Boston, which is 5.8% of our population. And, uh, you know, a month ago, we, we only had 10,000 um, uh, tested. So, uh, and again, you know, the challenges were, you know, lack of supplies, you know, because there was a willingness uh, from from providers to, to test. Uh, and certainly they have plenty of symptomatic folks waiting to be tested. So we, uh, we've made a, a huge effort in the last month to go out there and find um, a very natural partner for us to be able to ramp up testing in the city. And through that collaboration and engaging the health centers in our city, we've been able to increase our our testing and now are ready to talk about phase two, which is um, we're just getting ready to provide money again to the health centers. So they go beyond the boundaries of the health centers into the neighborhoods. We have identified uh, a number of uh, pockets in the city where we know there's high density of folks and low testing rates or no testing rates uh, that we can document and really uh, concentrated in some housing developments, you know, huge facilities that have there, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families there where we know uh, there's no test available. So that's the next uh, step we're taking. And um, we're hoping to, um, in in the next, by the end of the, this month, be at 1,500 tests per day. 
and sometime, you know, by July 1st to, to be doing about 3,500 tests per day in the city of Boston. That's great. I, the, the other part of the, the um, ingredient list there is, is contact tracing. Can you um, walk the listeners through what a contact tracer does and, you know, what, what's needed for that work? So, you know, typically in, in our shop, you know, this is done by public health nurses. Uh, in other places, it's been done by a, an epidemiologist. Um, so our public health nurses, the minute we find out that we have a case, it's reported to us by the uh, State Department of Public Health. We, uh, uh, our aim is to connect with, with that person within 24 hours uh, of us getting the report. So it's generated by a phone call uh, to the person. Uh, the public nurse introduces you know, himself or herself and explains the reason for the call. Often people say, oh, I was waiting for your call because you know, they already know they're positive because they have been informed by their, their primary care provider. And um, so, you know, the nurse established a rapport with the client, um, gets all the information about, you know, symptoms, you know, when did they start, what were the symptoms like, how are they doing that day, uh, and then moves on to, uh, you know, what is your household situation, you know, what type of work the person does, does they work with other folks, and really try to establish those circles of, you know, who may be the close contacts of, uh, of this uh, person. So that takes, you know, depending on, on the situation, it could take, you know, 20, 30 minutes on the phone. Uh, sometimes, you know, we may call a household and, and the person is in the hospital, so we're unable to talk to them. So then the nurse has to, to call a hospital, talk to whoever is taking care of that person, uh, and gather similar information. So then that, that may generate uh, no additional phone calls or multiple phone calls. Because at the beginning, we were, a case was generating on an average about five contacts. Uh, these days, you know, it's about two, but we expect, you know, as things get relaxed and people start go, to go out there and uh, more community transmission happens. And if we do get uh, some spikes of cases, we may end up, uh, again, having people that have been out there, whether they were symptomatic or not, that had the opportunity to expose a larger number of people. And, and then our, our contact tracing is going to go again, you know, up, you know, per case. So that's a really important insight. So I want to ask you, you know, what do you think? Are, are we ready to, uh, to quote unquote, open up? And what do you, what do you think if, if we do, what's going to happen? You know, I, I wish we, you know, as, as you know, these, these decisions are, are big systems decisions. You know, we're, we're, uh, Boston is not an island. You know, we're part of a state that, that's very diverse in terms of, you know, uh, what is the epidemiology of COVID-19 looking like in different counties and cities? And we happen to be, you know, the largest city that has, you know, uh, the majority of cases. There's, you know, like one or two other counties that, that you know, also have, uh, an, uh, a, you know, significant number of cases. But then there are other parts of the state that have seen um, uh, less amount of cases and, and uh uh, disease. So, um, and you know, our leaders uh, and elected officials have a huge pressure to uh, also uh, attend to the economy and the effects that you know closing down has had, you know, in in people's lives. And so, those are very real issues. And that obviously, 
anyone who wants to be reasonable can can affirm right and 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 uh, agree with. Uh, so, however, you know this should have never been an issue of the economy versus public health because that's not what what it is and that's not what it should be. It should be about the process. You know, how do we? We yes, we do have to reopen, but how do we do it? How do we? What kind of uh, process we follow? Uh, we really appreciate you taking that time uh, today uh, and spending uh, your, your moment uh, sharing your wisdom with us and your experience. Uh, and we hope that um, that uh, hopefully when we're all said and done with this, we'll get to see you in person soon, okay? Excellent. I love that. Thank you so much, Abdul. My interview with Dr. Benjamin after the break. My guest today is George Benjamin. He's a man who has been you know, both up front and behind the scenes coordinating American public health for a long time. He is the executive director of the American Public Health Association, somebody I uh, look up to deeply and whose work and thought and you know, consistency in this moment uh, is, is really quite critical. George, thank you so much for, uh, for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. No, Abdul, I'm glad I could be here. This is a wonderful opportunity to talk about this challenge we're having in our, in our lives today. As somebody who's um, who's been thinking about public health and its role in society, um, can you just give us some context about where our public health system was um, as COVID nineteen barreled uh, uh, along into us? Well, you know, we had a we had a public health system which has, of course, been underinvested in for for many years, and so we had a system which was able to handle a public health emergency, but we're un- unable to handle two or three public health emergencies. And so, you know, we've been, we've been going along, um, dealing with whatever health threats have been coming in communities. Um, and then, of course, COVID has really tested the ability of us to do uh, more than one thing at one time. Because, you know, we're still having to deal with foodborne outbreaks and measles outbreaks and um, injuries that are occurring in communities. Uh, and now we have this amazingly large um, very dangerous viral exposure to our community. Um, this pandemic has really stressed the ability and capacity of the public health system to do not just this outbreak, but the stuff that we always have to do every day. Yeah, that's a really important point because uh, for a lot of people who think about public health, this is the first time they've been forced to think about it. And they don't appreciate that public health was out there fighting a bunch of fires that nobody was uh, was paying attention to. And of course, those fires don't go away. And we still have to deal with them even as we, we mount a whole of society effort to take on this virus. Can you just explain to some of the folks, you know, what are the things that public health does that, you know, sort of happen in the background that, um, that, that none of us are paying attention to? Well, let me just say, you know, when you, when you um, there are many things that happen um, uh, every morning in your life. So when you get up every morning and your clothes didn't catch on fire, that's because the public health system put in um, flame retardant pajamas. We require that that happen, particularly for your kids. Um, the fact is, when you're cooking your breakfast in the morning and you cut on the faucet and you get clean, safe water to drink, uh, that's because of the public health system. Um, when you um, brush your teeth, and you, because, yes, you have to brush your teeth, but you also don't have cavities because of the fluoride in the water, which is protective of your teeth. That's because of public health. When you drive to work in the morning uh, and you, yeah, we make you put on your seatbelt. And if you have an um, a automobile collision, um, your life is saved because you had your seatbelt on. 
uh, and airbags and the design of your car. And if you were walking down the street and didn't get hit by an automobile today, is because we crafted the street designs so that it would reduce the risk of you getting hit. Then when you went out to lunch, you um, were able to eat and have a safe eating experience uh, because of the food was safe to eat. Um, again, water safe to drink. And as you walked around that afternoon after work and went out jogging and the air was safe to breathe, it's because public health has done its work. Now, your kids went to safe schools. They got to ride their bikes safely because the bicycle that was um, put together and sold to you in a store, um, we check those things and make sure that they're selling safe products. Um, so we do a lot of things. And when we do our best work, nothing happens. And of course, right. when you do your best work and nothing happens, you don't get credit for it. That's right. It's really hard to sell a non-thing. That's the the take-home message here. And so, you know, you got a lot of, we'll just say, ideologically driven politicians who say, I want to cut. And when it comes to the to cutting room, right, what do you cut first? You cut the thing that doesn't look like it's doing anything because it's it's working behind the scenes. And that's in part why public health continues to have its budget cuts, which crazy is, you know, as late as March, the Trump administration was trying to cut the CDC's budget, specifically on infectious disease response, as late as March. That's right. Um, while we were fighting this pandemic. And like, that's the thing is that it's, it's funny, right? It's like, the, you know, we all, I, I hope that as we move forward in this world, that all of us are willing and focused on constantly asking very nuanced questions about why we do things rather than just letting ideology tell us that we ought to do them. Because I think COVID-19 is a perfect example of what what can happen when, uh, you know, when you destroy the castle walls, as we, as we say, when I talk about public health, I always say that, you know, public health is a castle wall. Um, your ancestors built it there for a reason. Uh, and if, if you don't pay attention to why, uh, and you just let it crumble, you know, that reason could come back. Um, and here we are. So I want to ask, um, there's been a lot of conversation, of course, uh, as we, um, we, uh, we continue in, uh, in this moment of social distancing, uh, and states are quote unquote, starting to open up. Um, what do we need to do to safely open up? Yeah, well, what we should have done is follow the gating criteria that the administration uh, initially put up, which, made, which said, make sure that you have a health system that can handle the load. Make sure that you have enough testing so that you know if someone comes in with symptoms, whether or not they have COVID-19 or not, uh, and whether or not you can test the public-facing workers um, on a periodic basis who are being exposed um, to, uh, to COVID. And the third thing, of course, is making sure that you have a robust public health system that can not just continue to do the testing, um, but also be able to do contact tracing because the centerpiece of managing this outbreak, which we were doing since the beginning, by the way, but we've had to ramp up, is um, testing and contact tracing. And contact tracing is the ability of, of, no, of a system knowing um, who's been exposed, and then going to those people and seeing if they're sick, if they're not, um, putting them in isolation or quarantine, depending on their status. And that's been something we've been doing for time immemorial around public health. And unless you have those three systems in place, you're not even ready to open. And then once you begin to open, doing that in a thoughtful manner, slowly, so that we only have to reopen once, because that's important. Because it's going to be very, very difficult if someone decides we're going to open up the movie theaters on Monday and then 14 days later saying, oops, 
we shouldn't have done that. Now we're going to close the movie theater. That's going to be really, really tough to do. Yeah. Now, I, I think about it like an electrical system, right? If you have an electrical blackout, the electricity goes out, but the system's still there. But if you have a brownout and you've got a little bit of electricity happening, that's how you fry your system. And um, in some respects, what, what we're potentially walking into is a browning, intentional browning out of the electrical system if we don't get this right. So I got to ask, uh, do you feel like we're there yet in terms of having the things we need to be able to open up safely? You know, it turns out that there are probably some parts of the country that are. Um, you know, New York is on the downside of this curve. There's no def, there's no, no question that they are, they're ready to begin in some parts of the area opening up, but it's also where you open up, you know, do you do schools early? Do you do sporting goods early? No. Um, do you open up with small businesses that um, might be safe to do so? Um, I'm a little concerned about barbers and beauticians, particularly in minority communities, because, um, of the um, the risk for that particular population, but when you when you ask yourself, you know, if you have a small business that only has a few patrons uh, at a time, uh, or even a small restaurant that is able to spread people out, there may be some places where you can do that. But you got to think about that, and every state and every city is going to have to think about this thoughtfully. Um, but at the end of the day, they're still going to have to do basic public health hygiene, so masks hand-washing, social distancing, uh, all of those things are going to be extremely important mm-hmm. as we reopen. Um, what would be the hazards of opening up too early? What is, what is the, you know, what, what do you see as being the worst case scenario if, if, if we uh, were to mass open up too early? I, first of all, you'll get um, many more people who are sick and die, um, which was preventable. Uh, but also you lose the public's trust. You know, the fact is, um, if I have a business and I reopen, I'm a restaurant and I reopen too early and people find out that they came to my restaurant and got infected. That's not good for my business. You know, I may have to shut my business down again. And then the question is, when I reopen, are they really going to come back? That's right. Yeah, I I remember uh, when I was health director in the city of Detroit. The hard part, right, for a lot of these restaurants is uh, you, you tell them, look, if, if you're not able to comply with what we need to keep you safe, you don't understand that if there's one case of one of these diseases that's tied to your restaurant, that's your business forever. So you're better, to, better off to stay closed for a little while and get this right then, you know, the, the news shuts you down because all of a sudden you're the restaurant that was tied to some terrible, you know, hepatitis A outbreak. And you're right, like that reputational damage is, is critical. And, and I think sometimes folks aren't paying as much attention to that, that um, we're consumers. In the end, the economy is about people trusting each other. And as a consumer, right, my ability to go out and just be and do as I did before this thing ever happened has a lot to do with me weighing the risks of whether or not I think I'm going to get a super infectious deadly disease. And if I think I'm going to get one because the system hasn't taken its time to protect me in all the ways that you already talked about, then I'm not going to go out and buy my stuff. I'm just not, right? Because I'm trying to keep myself and my family safe. And people don't appreciate that. People think that somehow people are just like, you know what, going to gonna go, if, if the shop was open, I'd go there. Well, no, not necessarily. And um, and I think you're, you're absolutely right on that front. So what, what we've heard is this false dichotomy between public health and the economy. And I just don't know uh, that we're appreciating how tied those things are in, in the minds of most people. What, you know, we've, we've learned a lot about this virus, um, but there's still a lot that we don't know. If, if you could pick one thing that you uh, wish you knew 
uh, or two things that you wish you knew about this virus, what what would they be? Yeah, I would like to know whether kids were carriers and how infectious they are. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, um, the child care and children drive a lot of the decisions we're going to be making in the future. Um, so if I knew one thing, that would be, you know, I would like to know that. Amen. I, um, I've got a two-year-old and uh, we are in my in-law's house. And Dr. Benjamin can see this. I'm in my, my mother's uh, boutique closet here because it's got great audio. <laughs> um, you know, the, the thing that's driving our decision about whether or not we stay here in my in-law's basement or go back home uh, is whether or not we can provide our daughter childcare. And that has everything to do with the question of A, can she stay safe? And then B, what are the uh, risks of transmission through her um, that could uh, that that could keep us all um, healthy or or not? Uh, and so that's a that's a really really good point, uh, George. So you know we talked a little bit about this, but to come full circle, this this pandemic has exposed all of the crevices in our public health system uh, and frankly in our in our society. And coming out of this, uh, what do we need to do to make sure that something like this never happens again? I think we have to recognize that, um, first of all, bad bugs do happen. And we need to make sure that we build once and for all a robust public health infrastructure and system that will know anytime a new health threat comes into the community, gives us the capacity to rapidly assess it, um, contain it, um, and eliminate it to completely if we can, Um, and then put in what other preventive measures we need to do for the future. So that's the first thing. The second thing we need to do very clearly is recognize what something we already know is that there are populations that are more at risk than other populations because of exposure, because of underlying health status, um, because of just the social determinants that we have that influence people's health. And we ought to be putting those protections in right away, realizing those populations uh, are going to be more at risk. And in this case, it's the African-American and Hispanic populations, which are disproportionately carrying the load of disease here. And I need to say this is important because those communities are not more um, dangerous to us because they're infectious or infected. But but people think of it that way. And there's some shaming going on, um, you know, that needs to stop. Um, But we need to protect those communities by doing some different things. And we need to make sure that they're adequately accessed to testing, adequate access to treatment. And by the way, we're going to have this debate the day we get our first really good antiviral agent. Because the question will be, what's the price? Who gets it? How do we make sure it's equitably distributed? And then when we get the vaccine, we're going to have that same debate on Mm -hmm. steroids. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really important point. And um, you know, Dr. Benjamin uh, makes a really, really uh, important point about the the fact that the reason that black and brown communities in our society are suffering so much worse is because of the same social geography we've allowed to exist in our society for a long time. Um, and this idea that somehow it's your own behavior that shapes uh, your risk for disease is dashed when you look at, you know, these, these folks with... Uh, with guns who are um, having rally slash parties at, at the Capitol in Michigan, right? Um, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, this this has a lot more to do with access to a ba- very basic set of resources that we've robbed black and brown communities from from a very long time, whether it's clean air or clean water, or it's a good job that, you know, that allows you to work from home because you're part of the knowledge economy rather than uh, the service and the goods economy. Um, uh, or, you know, it's something as simple as like, you know, can you 
can, can you keep yourself fit, safe while you're transmitting or tra- transiting from one place to another? Um, and so, you know, the, these are really, really important points, and I appreciate you uh, raising that. Um, we, we ask everyone, uh, how are you spending these days? I'm sure you're exceedingly busy, but, um, you know, how are you spending your days? Uh, you know, wh- where, where are you and, uh, and who are you with and, and what are you doing to stay sane? So my wife and I are, are at our home um, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and I have been banished to an upstairs bedroom <laughs> where I'm spending, you know, from literally from six in the morning to nine at night, uh, engaging with other public health leaders, the media, um, people in the people in the administration um, and others trying to to address this um, as best we all can um, with a fast moving, fast changing event. And of course, um, trying to, you know, physically distance myself um, whenever I have to go out to a grocery store or something like that. And checking on my family. Um, I have a daughter out in the West Coast and uh, um, uh, another daughter and three grandkids and her husband up in uh, the Baltimore area. And we stay in touch because one of the things we want to make sure we all do is remain, maintain physical distancing, but also maintain social cohesion. And we're trying to make sure we do that as a family, as well as check on our neighbors. Well, uh, we, we hope that you and they um, stay safe and stay healthy in, in this time. Really, really appreciate your insights and your perspective on uh, these, these challenges and uh, hope that we get to, uh, to rub shoulders in, 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 in person in the future. I'm sure we will. Here's what I'm watching right now. More vaccines are entering phase one trials, with some showing promising early results. Could we have a vaccine before the year is out? Congress has passed another coronavirus relief package, though the Senate has declared it dead in the water. Will we see more congressional action to support Americans reeling from the economic consequences of COVID-19 in the near future? If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. I hope you enjoyed a great Memorial Day, and for all who celebrated Eid this past weekend, Eid Mubarak. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.